Welcome to In the Oil Patch, presented by Shale Magazine, broadcasting today from Agreco Studios. Agreco, powering the Permian. In the Oil Patch is where, together, we explore topics that affect us all in oil, gas, business, and in your community. Every week, your host, Kim Bellotto, will visit with the movers and shakers in this fast-paced industry. You'll hear from industry experts, elected officials, and many more right here on In the Oil Patch. And welcome to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. I'm your host, Kim Bellotto, and today we have a great show lined up for you. I'm going to have my co-host, David Blackman, and I catching up with Deloitte, an amazing company that's experts in the energy sector. So it's a show you don't want to miss. But before I bring them on, I'd like to talk to you about the latest issue of Shell Magazine. The cover features Mike Howard, who is the CEO of Howard Energy, amazing midstream company. And I'm excited about it because we don't and have not in the past had a lot of midstream companies. So I'm excited that Shell Magazine was able to catch up with the CEO. It's a great article. You don't want to miss it. Also, I want to put on your radar and your calendar an amazing event we're getting ready to have in Corpus Christi. It's called Our State of Energy. It's the fifth annual in Corpus Christi. It's an event you don't want to miss. It is scheduled for September 22nd, and it's a luncheon at the Omni Hotel right there on beautiful Ocean Drive in Corpus Christi. It will be a sold-out event, so you definitely want to get your tickets and sponsorships early. Our keynote is Mike Howard, CEO of Howard Energy, and will also be joined by Sean Strawbridge. For more information and to get your tickets now, go to shale, that's S-H-A-L-E, M-A-G.com. And you can also see the latest issue of Shell Magazine. And now it's time to bring on my co-host, David Blackman. David, welcome to this week's show. Hey, it's another beautiful day in Texas. It sure is. It's a little hot, uh, but it is super, super nice weather. I'm excited because today's segment is going to be on one of my favorite topics, which is I like talking about renewable, the green part of energy. So we're going to talk about uh, wind turbines in this segment because I think it's important that our listeners understand Everything that you hear about wind turbines, some is good and some is not so good. So let's start with, so there's a new report out this week from Europe demonstrating that wind energy is not all it's cracked up to be. Gee, who would have imagined that? The report found that output from the average wind turbine declined by 50% over 10 years. And that was at a cost, you you know, when you think about how much it takes to take down these wind turbines, that's a huge investment. And so they're costing billions of dollars for their cleanup. And so my question to you is, how come this information never gets out? What are your thoughts on, we know that they kill a lot of birds and they also release (laughs) admissions, uh, but I don't think the general public understands. Now they're losing a whole lot more than just that. What are your thoughts on that? Sure, yeah. The wind industry has a very effective lobby. Uh, they have the uh, news media uh, behind them, just parroting their messages without really educating anyone about the realities around wind energy, which wind energy is fine. You know, it's a big part of our, our grid mix here in Texas. But, but what you don't ever hear about is just what you talked about. It's the second biggest killer of birds on the planet behind power lines. Mm-hmm hundreds of thousands, if not millions of birds every year. And the more turbines you build, the more birds die. But but here's the one thing that's always bugged me about it is, is here in Texas and in most states, in fact, every state I'm aware of, has no regulations about how you dismantle these giant 300 to 500 to 700, even 700 foot tall wind turbines with their massive blades. 
-hmm. How do you dismantle those at the end of their useful life, which, you know, is no more than 20 years. Uh, and some of our wind farms in Texas are already that old. There's no regulations around that. There's no requirements that they be taken down and disposed of properly, like, like there is with oil wells and, and every other kind of energy. And so, so what's going to happen is without any regulations to, to require these things be disposed of is they're just going to sit there and rot, eventually fall down and dilapidate because the operators of the big wind farms aren't going to want to pay, you know, bear the gigantic cost of the removal. And and so, and and like you also pointed out, they lose a a lot of their efficiency over time, their machines, um, without proper maintenance, they lose it more rapidly. Um, so it just, it's, it's not this touchy feely, non-impactful thing that, that is all we hear about uh, in the news media and on television. They're, they're, they have major impacts, major problems, big issues environmentally mm-hmm. uh, that no one likes to talk about. And, and you know, you're bringing up a good point, which is, so we all see these huge rigs down, going down the freeway with these big old wind blade, wind, wind turbine blades. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, I read an article not so long ago about where is wind turbine heaven, if you will. And it is in some, they're being buried in some of the most pristine, beautiful places in the United States, Wyoming. This is yeah. where they're burying these wind turbines that are being removed. And then I also get a visual of of a backyard with tons of those windmills. Can you imagine having a backyard with them everywhere? They're just, you know, and they're not even spinning anymore and you can't do anything with them. And that's kind of how Texas and a lot of the United States is starting to look with these wind turbines everywhere on the landscaping. Well, so, yeah, I mean, if you live in Taft, Texas, that, that is your life. That's right? where my home is. <laughs> Thanks <laughs> right. for bringing that up. <laughs> Let's switch gears and talk about Joe Biden because, you know, he's proposed uh, in his proposal to spend trillions, not billions, but trillions of dollars uh, subsidizing wind and solar yeah. in the coming years. So do you think that the public understands how costly this is going to be? And not in the way of just new taxes, but also in their power bills. Because let's talk about the storage. Tell, t- tell me about the storage of wind turbines. What's the problem there with wind turbines? Uh, not to mention all this other stuff. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, it's just it's like. Uh, electric cars, the battery technology is really not there yet. Uh, the problem with, with intermittent power sources like that is there's no means of actually storing the energy they produce uh, so that you can use the excess energy up when the sun's not shining and the wind's not blowing. That, that technology just doesn't exist. And so uh, so we're going to spend know, trillions on technology right. that we don't have a way of storing. Exactly. Yet. Now, theoretically, I guess the theory that uh, AOC and Bernie Sanders are convincing Biden's handlers of is that, well, you know, if we spend trillions of dollars, we're going to develop the technology faster. But it's not just not just a matter of money. Billions and billions of dollars have already been spent every year mm-hmm. trying to develop that technology. And it's, it's just not they're making progress. I don't want to say they're not making progress, but it's slow. Uh, and then you also have the limitations of the the raw materials, the minerals, the rare earth minerals that uh, go into these batteries uh, that are mined in places like Mongolia, strip mine in Mongolia, using slave labor, by the way, that no one likes to talk about, and Africa using child labor that mm-hmm. no one likes to talk about. Uh, and these are finite resources. So at some point, you know, people love to talk about how we're, we're always running out of oil, which we never really are. 
but no one likes to talk about the fact that we're going to run out of these minerals much more rapidly uh, in, in very short order. Okay. Yeah. So people, if you're sitting there thinking that wind and solar is going to be this permanent solution and provide free energy to everybody forever, you know, you're, you're living in a dream world. That's not going to happen. Oh, and quickly and, though, and we have to deal with reality, which Biden's plan does not do. Can you have a wind turbine created or solar panels without oil and gas? No, absolutely not. In fact, you know, nor, <laughs> nor apparently can you create a solar panel without China, because that's where pretty much all of them are produced. No, you can't. You have to have the energy. It takes a lot of energy to build these panels, and it takes a lot of energies to build these giant wind turbines. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of that energy produces emissions, just like oil and gas does. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, it's just the whole reality around renewable energy is a you know, it's kind of like a fantasy world that a lot of people live in because no one is bothering to really educate the public. But we about are. About the reality. But we well, are. we try to. And, we try to. You know, we do it. And, and that's our whole point here is, is not that these are bad, okay? Wind and solar are not bad. They're fine. But we have to deal with reality. And the reality is that they're very limited. Uh, they're not scalable on the size of the, the amount of energy we need to have in this country or any other country. And they're temporary. They are not a permanent solution to anything. Mm. And, and it's very important, particularly for policymakers, to deal with reality. Exactly. I want to throw something in real quick because one of our energy minutes discussed Venezuela that neighbors announced that it had deactivated its yeah. last drilling rig in the entire country. That's scary because this country was one has one of the largest deposits of oil and gas period the on the planet. And now yeah. they don't even have a single drilling rig. Is this the new Biden coming to America if he's <laughs> elected? I mean, because he wants to stop fracking and all of, uh, especially our federal land. So tell me how tr- problematic is this to no, you? That's exactly what the goal of the Biden energy plan is. And, and again, I don't even know that Joe Biden's aware of it, to be honest with you. I, I honestly don't know if he really understands his own program because it was written by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. It mm-hmm. was written by Bernie Sanders. Uh, it was adopted by Biden's handlers, his campaign staff. And it is, that's really the goal, is ultimately for the United States. To look to like Venezuela? Energy, right, to where look we're, like Venezuela, where we're, no drilling rigs. You know, it's it's insanity. It's just pure insanity. Insanity and not reality, let's hope, right. because you yeah. just have to look at Venezuela to see, you know, what their country, their most precious resource, same as us and anyone on the planet needs oil and gas. Um, if you're, you cannot have a successful country without having access to this and abundance of it correct and so when you take that away what do you have left and this actually you know oil and gas is what sustains life in so many different ways in so many different forms it's a synergy that we must have is the point to produce anything else and if we keep that in mind then what we're seeing come out through the green new deal and what's happening i'm not for i'm not saying you should vote for president trump or president biden what i'm saying is that this one policy is very problematic and it should be to all of us that's what i'm saying yeah. uh in 1998 was the peak of venezuelan oil production 3 million 3.5 million barrels of oil per day that was the year that hugo chavez the first socialist president of venezuela was elected and it's all been downhill ever since then. Joe Biden, whether he realizes it or not, 
is endorsing policies that would make him the first socialist president of the United States of America. Mm -hmm. And we see what's happened in Venezuela. It's an object lesson for all of us. We should pay attention to it. Well, and I'll close with this. Elections have consequences. Let's hope that uh, we think about this one because it's a very important topic. That's all the time we have. When we get back from break, though, we're going to be joined by Dwayne, Scott, and Katie with Deloitte. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show, and we'll be right back. Any business can benefit from advertising to the oil and gas industry, but it's really important to partner with a marketing company that has a proven track record with this growing industry. Shale Oil & Gas Business Magazine is the one-stop shop that'll keep you in front of the customers that you need to grow your business. So let's start growing your business in Texas. Email us, info at shalemag.com. Again, that's info at shale, S-H-A-L-E, mag, M-A-G, dot com. Or you can call us. 210-240-7188. Again, that's 210-240-7188. And now it's time to welcome on our guest, David. We have three representatives from Deloitte, great partner to Shell Magazine and in the Oil Patch Radio Show. So I want to welcome Dwayne Dixon. Dwayne, this is certainly not your first time on our show, so welcome back to the show. You are the Vice Chairman, U.S. Oil, Gas, and Chemical Sector Leader, and Global Energy Resource and Industrial Consulting Leader for Deloitte Consulting, LLP. Welcome back to the show. Thank you, Ken. I'd like to welcome Katie Pavlosky, who is with Deloitte Financial Advisory Services, U.S. Energy Resource and Industrial Advisory. Welcome to the show. This is your first time to join us. It is. Thank you for having me. Last but certainly not least, we have Scott Sanderson, who is a principal with Deloitte Consulting LLP as well. Scott, welcome. This is your first time on our show too. Pleasure to be here. You know, it's always a treat. And of course, David, you know, you have not been introduced to a lot of the interviewers from Deloitte. But I, I wanted to start off by just, you know, saying welcome to the show. Deloitte, you guys are definitely a powerhouse when it comes down to talking about oil and gas. And what is your vision or all of the analysis that you guys do regularly on the oil and gas sector? But before we start, Dwayne, I want to start with you because obviously you've been on the show a couple of times. Or we're going to be talking about the great compression, the implications of COVID-19 on the shell industry. Everyone has an opinion on where shell is. Is it going to fall off the map, which I highly doubt that. But we really wanted to get you guys on the show so we could talk a little bit about what is really happening and really bring some credible information. Before we start, I want to start with Dwayne. Tell us a little bit about what your role is, what Deloitte does for the oil and gas sector before we start our questions. Thanks, Kim. Uh, My role uh, in leading the U.S. oil, gas, and chemicals uh, sector is really uh, focused on our clients and as you can imagine, our clients are going through a, a series of major changes at this point in time and, and transformation. My, my focus is, is to stay in touch with uh, the issues of the market, to talk with our clients and the client base about kind of what they're seeing and what, what they're expecting to experience in the future, and to work with all of our practitioners on on, on how we're solving various problems and what tools and capabilities and partnerships are out there to help us do it. 
And Katie and Scott, you guys are principals as well, so I'm assuming a, a little bit slightly different roles, and they may overlap with Dwayne, but you guys are also definitely experts when we talk about energy, energy resources. Katie, are you in, in Houston as well? I sit in Houston, and I support Dwayne and the broader practice, particularly focused on looking at some of the regulatory financial and technological risk, particularly within the cyber and the security area. Very, very important and emerging topics here in the oil and gas. And Scott, uh, tell us a little bit about what your area focus is with Deloitte as a partner as well. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm just a 28-year oil guy. <laughs> I like the way I'm just a. <laughs> is the way I sort of describe myself. I've been in and around the industry both as an operator on a small scale as well as a consultant and banker. So a lot of passion for the industry and the sector and seen a lot of ups and downs in that time. Excellent. I think that oil and gas is really such an amazing topic. It's it's a topic that is, to me, one of the most misunderstood topics and yet one of the most important resources we have on the planet. Shell Magazine and the Oil Patch Radio Show, that's kind of what we're dedicated to, you know, trying to explain to the average person and uh, as well as the energy industry and their experts, uh, trying to decipher between what is really pie in the sky, if you will, and then also what is factual data by great firms like Deloitte that actually look at the data, study it, analyze it with great experts. And so today's topic that we're we're discussing is the great compression implications of COVID-19 and the shell industry. You know, what, a year ago, I don't think anyone would have even believed where we are today, but I do believe that there were a lot of large integrated oil companies that had this on their radar and were in some ways trying to prepare for what was coming. And so we're here now. Um, And so the Great Compression, Duane, I want to start with you. Uh, Tell us a little bit about what the Great Compression is. We may have to take this into break, but I want to get started with it because I know it's, it's kind of a pretty involved discussion. Yeah, so I think the great compression, as, as we define it, uh, has, has a couple of components. First of all, um, we have the COVID-19 situation and an unprecedented drop in conventional demand for fuels, uh, whether that meant lack of mobility or that meant changes of patterns of ways people work. Uh, definitely... A, a very, very serious drop in demand. Secondly, ongoing tension uh, in, in the world on a production uh, front and and low oil prices, very low oil prices. Uh, combine that with uh, a significant amount of investment, um, not really looking like it, it can hold up under much lower break-evens, and you have the great compression. So that's that's uh, what we're what we're looking at, and as we look ahead, uh, our our whole focus is trying to figure out n- number one how deep it goes, and number two what the remedies are. And this is going to be an excellent show because that is probably the million dollar question: is where are we right now? How far are we at the bottom? Are we on our way back up? When we get back from break, I want to start a discussion on where that specifically is and what do you see the energy industry moving towards? Are there any commonalities of what we're going to start seeing in the energy industry as a result of COVID-19 and the drop of prices, which of course is what you guys are calling the great compression. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show and we'll be right back. 
The Texas Alliance of Energy Producers has a rich and commanding history of fighting for the independent oil and gas industry. The Texas Alliance became a statewide organization in 2000 with the merger of two of the oldest oil and gas associations in the nation, the North Texas Oil and Gas Association and the West Central Texas Oil and Gas Association. Today, with more than 2,600 members, the Texas Alliance is the largest statewide association in the country serving independent energy producers and associated industries. Through our efforts in Washington, D.C. and Austin, the Texas Alliance is focused on a better business climate for you. The Texas Alliance has a staff consisting of highly experienced senior staff and supporting consultants serving our membership. Offices are located in Austin and Wichita Falls. Become a member today by visiting texasalliance.org or email us texasalliance at texasalliance.org. Plan your next meeting or event at Victoria College's Emerging Technology Complex, home to the -the state-of-the-art Conference and Education Center, conveniently located between Houston and Corpus Christi. The center hosts meetings, educational workshops, and banquets for up to 300 people with the latest in technology amenities and ample parking. Let their professional meeting planners make your next event a success. For more information, go to conferenceinvictoria.com. Once again, that's conferenceinvictoria.com. And we're back. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. Our guest today is Katie, Scott, and Duane, all with Deloitte. Before the break, we were discussing the Great Compression. What is the energy industry experiencing with the drop of oil prices, COVID-19, and then lack of demand? And you guys are here to kind of walk us through what is the energy industry dealing with. Scott, tell me a little bit about the impairments and your viewpoints on the future of the energy industry. There's been a lot of discussion on bankruptcies. And so let's start with that. Tell me what you think we're going to see. Sure. Um, happy to. So we we did a study, uh, analyzed the balance sheet and the carrying costs of uh, a lot of the shale properties and found that there is about $300 billion of assets that would need to be impaired uh, at, at a $35 oil price, at a $35 strip. And what, what that really means is the present value of their future cash flows, given a $35 oil price and today's technology and cost of lifting, uh, would be below the carrying costs of those assets on their balance sheets today. Uh, and so that's a pretty significant uh, financial hit that they would take um, uh, on their statements. Some might argue well, that's not really a cash issue, it's more of an accounting issue, and that's true, uh, but it also would indicate that if they have to write down those assets, that would uh, challenge some of their uh, lending and debt covenants, coverage ratios, and things of that nature, and just puts more stress and more gearing onto the balance sheet, which is not really, it's not really a good time to put more uh, effective leverage on the balance sheet. We've also found that nearly a third of the, op- so, so that's the asset viewpoint. Okay. From the company standpoint, we found that nearly a third of the operators are what we call technically insolvent, which is sort of just the accumulation of the cash flows of the assets versus their balance sheet and their overall corporate leverage ratios. 
And again, that's at our $35 oil price. Um, of course, we've seen a bit of a recovery since then, um, certainly a recovery since uh, 10, 12 weeks ago, which is uh, a, a bit of relief. Uh, that $300 billion impairment number at $35 a barrel looks more like $240, at uh, $40 a barrel. And interestingly, if we can get to the point where we're closer to $50 a barrel, uh, the health of the companies, their assets and their balance sheets significantly improve. So there is some leverage to the upside on, on oil price that will help us sustain uh, the shale industry. Katie, I wanted to talk to you about the consolidation in the industry. We uh, recently saw Chevron announce its intention of, to acquire Noble Energy, obviously a big merger deal uh, in the upstream part of the business. Uh, do you think that's a signal that uh, the M&A part of the business is going to become more active during the second half of the year? So I certainly think that the Chevron one is interesting and it's aligned with where we expected some of the activity to be. Overall, what I anticipate is that we will see something closer to what we did in 2015 where buying certainty, uh, even at a higher price, will be prioritized over opportunistic buying or, or buying in an uncertain environment at a lower cost. If this is the case, then we may see significant buying activity more towards the end of the year or moving into the spring when there is more clarity around COVID-19, the overall state of the economy, and uh, also the oil market specifically. W what's interesting is by the time that this happens, some of the rationale for the buying won't be the same, uh, is in this period is, the engineering and the valuation assumptions will have been reset to uh, the the new normal, and so although there's a, a um, although the long-term verdict on M&A shouldn't be given at today's low price, uncertainty and volatility are, are something that buyers are going to continue, I think, to be wary of going forward. When we get back from break, I want to discuss just a little bit more the announcement from Chevron over Noble Energy, if that's okay. And of course, coming up a little bit later on, who are some of the, the operators that you guys feel are in a really good position to win? You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show, and we'll be right back. Hi folks, Alvin Bailey here. Did you know Agreco is proud to sponsor In the Oil Patch Radio Show? Agreco has served Texas oil fields for over 10 years supporting producers with temporary power to get their product to market. When utility power is not available, Agreco is your reliable alternative. They service everything from pump jacks with a single 200 kilowatt unit to massive gas processing facilities requiring 50 megawatts or more. Agreco is your dedicated engineering partner for diesel and natural gas generators as well as battery power solutions. Call Agreco today at 1-800-AGRECO. That's 1-800-A-G-G-R-E-K-O. And we're back. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. We're being joined today by Dwayne, Scott, and Katie, all with Deloitte. Guys, before the break, we were discussing the great compression and what the energy industry is really um, experiencing. 
Deloitte being an expert in consulting in this area, we, we decided to have you guys on the show to kind of discuss what is the energy industry experiencing. And, and now I want to kind of pivot to companies and their positions. This is a very tough environment. Um, and there's a lot of discussion on, you know, in which way companies should go to be in their best uh, position to be able to handle overall this tough environment. Uh, Scott, tell me any advice Deloitte is giving on what are the best positions for, for these companies to be in? Which Where should they be moving towards? Yeah, yeah, uh, certainly. So w- w- one finding in our study was that um, there, there's only about 27% of the companies in, in our uh, sample set of shale operators that are both strong operationally and strong financially. And those would be good targets to either buy or a super major or a large independent or possibly get together and combine. Uh, the struggle with them getting together and combining independently is, can it get financed? Can equity be used as currency and so forth just to get the deal done? And then of course, there's a lot of integration synergies that have to be earned in order for those deals to make sense. And there is sort of a synergy trap because not all of those deals end up working out in the future. On a somewhat different scale, we, we do think that the super majors and the large well-capitalized independents are going to be in a good place to pick off either companies or assets that meet some of their targets. And we do expect to see some of that, whether it's going to be a massive wave or whether it's going to be you know strategic deals, even though some of them may be sizable, um, we think that, you know, the jury is still out on on, on that. Again, pricing is an issue uh, for the big guys. Financing should be much less of an issue. So that's probably the nature of the deal making that we'll see uh, on a corporate level is the, the larger independents and super majors taking on deals like we just talked about and maybe some of the of the stronger independents being able to get together. Let's switch gears and talk a little bit about the energy transition. That's a very big word going on right now. There's a lot of buzz going on with that. And so in the energy transition, what, Dwayne, if anything, do you expect for it to accelerate in this area or continue to slow down? And Katie, as well, you're welcome to also jump in here as well. That's a question that's getting a lot of discussion, I think. When we think about the energy transition, sort of simple definition, it's uh, it's the energy system that we've experienced till today. Uh, large large focus on fuels, uh, large focus on mobility, and and electrification uh, uh, sort of on the rise to a more renewable, sustainable, lower carbon future. So that's that's kind of the energy transition as it, as it's defined. Pre-COVID, it was speeding up. We were seeing lots of signs uh, of, of potential impact on fuel demand. We were seeing, um, uh, obviously, a rise in electrified vehicles. We were seeing shared transportation being very, uh, very desirable. We we're actually seeing parts of the younger generation becoming less and less interested in ever owning a car. Since COVID, we've seen some changes to that. It's uh, you know, obviously, we've got lower commodity prices, and it's not, you know, it, it changes the break even for renewables. Uh, but renewables are pretty stable in terms of their returns. So there's still a, a reasonable business case for, for renewable investment. It's just, uh, it's, it's up against pretty low fuel prices. 
The second uh, thing that you see is uh, people not necessarily being real trusting of mass transportation and shared vehicles shared and so forth. So uh, you might see a bit of a surge in cars. We're also seeing a flight from cities. Uh, so uh, th that's an interesting dynamic as well that requires potentially different modes of mobility. Uh, and then we offset it again by, you know, a big drop in air travel, uh, big, a big drop in overall mobility due to virtualization. So I didn't really tell you whether it's going faster or slower, but there's forces that make it go faster, forces that make it go slower, uh, but I would expect it to continue. Well, there have been some big announcements pertaining to a very big push on electric vehicles, but then there's also been a very big pushback with COVID on people not so much trusting the public transit system. And I wonder if carpooling also has really probably cooled off to uh, being an iceberg, if you will. Any uh, potential uh, comments on that? How do you see the community just responding to post-COVID pertaining to like, will people more than likely want to jump back into carpooling with each other? How are cities going to respond to mass transportation that is a scary thing right now. Will it ever return back to normal? Just more or less, what do you think will happen? Broadly, as it relates to uh, the energy transition and thinking about the impacts associated with, uh, you know, production use, et cetera, I don't think that the pressures from the regulators or other stakeholders are going to slow down. And in part because with uh, the last couple of months, and the economic slowdown in general and in practices as it relates to transportation, the impacts associated with that were demonstrated and they were positive. So I think that that is going to increase the pressure from stakeholders and regulators. And from my experience, uh, that is not lost on our clients who are focused on not only their commitments in that area, but also right now trying to maintain their economic solvency. So to be determined, but I think we have a better view of what good looks like. And I think trying to strive towards that as is we return to normal, both as personal citizens and also as corporations operating is, is going to be uh, an area of focus. Well, when we get back from break, I think it is probably going to come out to being a personal choice. But when we get back from break, I want to switch gears just a little bit. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show, and we'll be right back. Are you a business owner feeling overwhelmed where to begin your business's online presence? Maybe you've spent thousands of dollars in the past just to be highly disappointed with the results. We understand because we were once you. Since then, we decided to hire the very best experts to help us and you. Let us send you our business profile that will quickly show you your Google business rankings in these five areas. Reputation, ratings online, website, advertising and social media, and search engine optimization. All of these areas really affect how Google ranks your entire listing. So if ranking on page one is your goal, pick up the phone and call us now, 210-240-7188, or simply go to shalemag.com slash business profile. We'll be in contact with you within 24 hours. Once again, pick up the phone and call us now, 
210-240-7188 or simply go to shalemag.com. That's S-H-A-L-E-M-A-G.com slash business profile. Start dealing with a company you can trust and always find. Remember this name, Oilfield Experts, to locate any part, anytime for your automotive or oilfield equipment needs. From the auto repair shop to the pump jack, call us for the right part right now. Write down this number, Oilfield Experts, 210-471-1923. Again, that's 210-471-1923. And visit us on the web at theoilfieldexperts.com. The vision of the Women's Energy Network is to be the premier organization that educates, attracts, retains, and develops professional women working across the value chain. Also known as WEN, our mission is to develop programs that provide networking opportunities and foster career and leadership development of women who work in the energy industry. Thousands of women are breaking ground in energy industry careers every year, and 4,000 of them are already members of the Women's Energy Network across our 14 chapters. Members receive exclusive access to mentoring, job boards, group discussions, member-only networking events, expert speaking engagements, and more. Join today by visiting womensenergynetwork.org slash Houston or call 1-855-390-0650. The Women's Energy Network, empowering women in energy. Shale Oil & Gas Business Magazine provides services like print advertising and digital marketing. Our digital advertising services include website, email, radio, video, and social media. Shale also provides specialized web services from website management to search engine optimization and social media management. Visit our website, shalemag.com. Once again, that's shale, S-H-A-L-E, mag, M-A-G.com to learn more. Shale is your one-stop shop for growing your business. Pick up the phone today and call 210-240-7188. Again, 210-240-7188. And we're back. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. Our guest today is Dwayne Scott and Katie with Deloitte. You know, there's so much personal choices we're all going to have to make post-COVID-19 when we finally get past this crisis. You know, will some of us return to public transit? Will some of us return to carpooling? And, and some of us will some of us feel comfortable going on vacation again in, in an airplane? I think businesses are going to deal with this, too, as a whole of how comfortable do they feel about sending their staff or employees, you know, in an airplane or uh, carpooling together. One thing is for sure that COVID has definitely changed the way we we think about things now and personal space. So it'll be interesting to see in time. Let's talk about, you know, we've, we've obviously the industry, the oil and gas business is in a tough spot. COVID has really produced the deepest crash uh, in this business since at least the early 1980s and maybe uh, even longer ago than that. And I wonder, I'll just throw it out to all of you. What is the industry's path to recovery here? How do businesses go about make themselves, for example, more attractive to uh, the capital markets, which has been a huge challenge. It was already a big challenge for the industry. I'll start. I, the The primary focus right now in, in this current environment is is safeguarding the business. And I touched on that in my earlier comments. And I that's both focused on Uh, saving capital as well as cost. This sector, oil and gas in particular, is very practiced in looking at at ways to take cost out. And they've been very tactical 
looking at operations, looking at the financial piece and the longer term strategic working capital environment. I think the opportunity today is there has been a real advancement around technologies, whether it's in ERP systems or digital or AI. And so, so looking at that as it relates to having a real time view around account payables, receivables and inventory to enhance the view uh, as it relates to that financial performance is, is an opportunity. Uh, what, what we've been seeing is, is you know, a weekly look at the cash flow controls and monitoring progress against plans and, and doing that in a real time view and really positioning, I think, with what's available now in terms of technology to foresee and get ahead of problems and opportunities. So going beyond the four walls in terms of the ways that they're really trying to structure uh, cost reduction. Scott, I got a comment on um, how are they going to recover and be more attractive? Sure, sure. Uh, I might just add to what um, Katie said. You know, generally speaking, I like to say, paraphrasing um, Mark Twain, that the death of the oil industry may be gen you know, greatly exaggerated. Um, there's significant resource uh, here in the ground, and there is massive R&D spending historically and continuing uh, to continue to bring down the break-even cost or improve the productivity of both capital and expense. And I wouldn't put it past the industry to come up with yet another breakthrough, um, whether it's in how we complete wells, how we frack them, what fluids we use. I know there's research on nanofluids that increase the effective permeability of shale and tight reservoirs, uh, refracking existing wells and getting back to that same initial IP. Uh, so a much lower uh, capital intensity to that operation, of course, versus buying acreage and, and, and drilling. So there's a, there are plenty of innovations um, that are being worked on and uh, tested. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if one or two of those come through in a, in a pretty significant way over the next handful of years and, and just make the shales overall more attractive and maybe a bit more stable so the capital markets can be more comfortable uh, investing. Dwayne, any final thoughts on how uh, the industry can be a little bit more attractive in uh, winning back some of uh, Wall Street and, and investors and, and, and even the community environmentalists? Yeah, um, and good comments by uh, Katie and Scott, but I think I'll start with the fact that things are never going to be the same. It's It's not... It's not a situation where we hit, you know, we, we wait for a rebound. It's kind of, we've hit the reset button here. Um, to be in, investable, companies are going to need to be sustainable. They're going to have to have a focused strategy, which might have lighter assets or more agility. Mobility is going to return. People are going to start moving around again. Uh, cures are going to be found. Um, and there are smart people in this industry. And one of the things that we've proven over a long period of time, just as Scott said, is uh, when times get tough, things get, uh, things get invented, innovation you know, rises, and that's really good. So I'm pretty optimistic for the future, but it's going to be a couple of rough years between now and, and that period of time. And you're right. That's how the industry has always responded throughout its entire history. And so I, I, I really appreciate your comments there, all of you, uh, in that regard. I think the industry has a long history of innovating its way out of a crisis. 
I think the other thing that I heard today from the show is that while it is going to be a tough go and everybody needs to buckle up, I have to say that I'm very glad you guys came on the show because just, you know, yesterday alone, there were five pieces in five major media outlets and every one of them were kind of already touting oil and gas is done, solar and winter on the rise and and look, I'm not here to say that that's true or not. All I am going to say is that I think that oil and gas has a long life still left here. Shell plays and North America producers still exist and will continue. Even as we see them get more attractive in their diversification, I think, though, that you know, having the general population believe that oil and gas will be gone like within five years is not quite accurate. And so as we see this great energy transition, we probably should keep an eye on that it's going to take a while before everything kind of starts transitioning, whatever that means. And so on behalf of David and myself, I want to thank you guys for stopping in today, talking to us a little bit about what's happening in the Great Compression. And we look forward to having you all back on again here in the future when we can talk a little bit more about oil and gas and hopefully some more updates on the transition. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. In the Oil Patch is where, together, we explore topics that affect us all in oil, gas, business, and in your community. Every week, your host, Kim Bilotto, will visit with the movers and shakers in this fast-paced industry. You'll hear from industry experts, elected officials, and many more right here on In the Oil Patch.